Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. One of the great things about making movies is you get, it's just you get put in such extraordinarily odd, weird predicaments and problem. You have to solve so many problems all the time that are just so weird. You know, how do you get this, a zebra into this room? You know, stuff like that. And you just have to figure stuff out all the time. It's really just experience of being in, put into all of these different situations that perhaps you develop your own kind of judgment and acumen. I think it's just experience and a desire to learn. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Thank you so much for this past month's feedback. Wow. Great episodes with people like Daryl Hammond and Patricia Heaton. You guys have been so amazing, your messages. I'm so grateful. Thank you for subscribing and listening and passing it on. And before I get started, I rarely do this, but this is the anniversary of the passing of the guy who really meant a lot to me and the comedy community. And I'm talking about Greg Giraldo. He was just a really, really special person. He opened almost every roast I could ever remember on Comedy Central and always killed harder than you could ever imagine. And Greg had a great relationship with all the comedians and even better relationship with his audiences. He's just truly, truly somebody who I always remember as a guy who was powerfully funny, powerfully driven, and unfortunately the forces that can take a hold of some of the comedians that I know they grab a hold too tight and they don't let go and we lose some of the great ones and greg was one of those people so if you want to learn more about greg you can do so by going wherever you get books whether it's amazon or barnes and noble and and order greg giraldo a comedian story i highly recommend it it's written by matt balaker and wayne jones with a forward by colin quinn and it's a really great depiction of his story and what he was all about and you'll see after you read it how inspiring he was 
and how his legacy should be remembered. So please check that out. And before I get started, I want to let you know that if you need to reach me, you can do so at Barry Katz on Instagram or Twitter or at BarryKatz.com. Leave a message and I'd be glad to get back to you. I just found out today I've been invited to the prestigious New York Comedy Festival. I will be there on Wednesday, November 6th at 7 p.m. at The Stand. So check it out. You can get tickets at the New York Comedy Festival website or at the stand website. I would love to see you there. I can't wait. And I will be announcing my special guest very soon. And I'm very excited about today's episode with my guest. And without further ado, I'm going to introduce him to you. Richard Gladstein is a two-time Academy Award-nominated film producer and is the founder and president of the Los Angeles-based motion picture production company Film Colony. Gladstein enjoys an extensive and fruitful collaboration with Quentin Tarantino as producer of The Hateful Eight and executive producer of Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, and Jackie Brown. Gladstein's two Academy Award nominations for Best Picture of the Year were for his films The Cider House Rules and Finding Neverland. He also produced The Time Being, for which he also co-wrote the screenplay, Expecting, Paper Man, Kill Shot, The Born Identity, She's All That, Hurley Burley, The Nanny Diaries, The Crossing Guard, and 54, among many others. Prior to the formation of Film Colony, Gladstein was executive vice president and head of production at Miramax Films, supervising the company's development and production activity, and prior as vice president of production and acquisitions at Live Entertainment, the home video division of Carol Co. Pictures. Gladstein's films have received 25 Academy Award nominations, won five and have accumulated worldwide theatrical box office receipts in excess of one billion dollars. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today from his beautiful, beautiful home, Richard Gladstein. Hello. Happy to be with you. <laughs> I love it here. I'm going to say it on mic. This is really, really a special sanctuary and you should be very proud. It's just an amazing sanctuary. It's beautiful. Thanks. It's fun to fun to design and build stuff. I have so many questions to ask you, but the biggest question I have to ask you, in your career you've worked with so many different people, and a lot of times what we're not taught in school, we're never taught how to be a leader of men and women, and how to navigate the different personalities that there are in the world that you come in contact with when you have to create and do successful business ventures. And we all know there's people that walk in the room and the hair on the back of your neck stands up and there's people who walk in the room and it's like, ah, everything's gonna be okay. And so my first question is, how did you learn to become a leader of men and women? I think probably most businesses most fields are sort of apprentice oriented and you sort of start at the bottom and you work your way up and certainly the film business is known for being that way and i think that you know as you people work through the film business you get put in so many different situations and so many oddities that you have to sort of just rely on your instincts and over years i think it's really just experience of being in, put into all of these different situations that perhaps you develop your own uh, 
kind of judgment and acumen. But w one of the great things about making movies is you get put in, it's just you get put in such extraordinarily odd, weird um, predicaments that are business related, ego related, um, and problem, you, you have to solve so many problems all the time that are just so weird, you know? How do you get this, a zebra into this room, you know? And like, it's just, okay, well we won't get a zebra, we'll get a horse and we'll paint stripes on it. Okay, that'll work, you know, stuff like that. And you just have to figure stuff out all the time. And I think it's just probably experience and a desire to learn. Can you share with our audience one story in the beginning of your career where you had that extraordinary situation where you're faced with something that comes to you that's a new problem that has to be solved and the process of how you solve the problem? Well, here's one. It wasn't so much in the beginning of my career. It was more, you know, maybe eight years ago, but it, it stands out as a learning experience for me. Um, when I was producing a film and there were lots of different personalities, there were other producers, there was the studio, there was a financier, there was another financier who was sort of a partner. Everybody wanted to, the movie, the cut of the movie wasn't working so great. We had to figure out what we were going to do to make the movie better. And um, with everyone in the room, I remember I sort of unleashed a kind of a pent up uh, over the course of making the movie and cutting the movie. I just sort of un threw up on everybody about how this one screwed up and that one screwed up. And, and we wanted to do this once, but you guys shut that down. And we wanted to do this once, but you shut that down. And, and we could do this, but you don't want that. And I just unleashed a sort of vomit on everyone and one of the people in the, we took a break after that because I sort of just ripped into everybody and he, he took me aside this one of the people working on the movie and he said do you want to be right or do you want to solve the problem it really took me back for a second and I started thinking about it he said because you've you've basically told everyone about how they've screwed up, which I'm sure, you know, I'm sure, I bet you 90% of it's right, you know? Um, and you even acknowledged how you screwed up, great. But we're trying to solve the problem and basically do you think that this really helps? Is it gonna get us there? Are you gonna, and also in the course of it, do, what is it that you want? Because I can't tell. And it was a great lesson in sort of do you want to be right or do you want to get what you want? Do you want to just throw up on people or do you want to solve the problem? Now I'm sitting across from you and I'm trying to visualize the expression on your face and what your next sentence was after he said that. I said thank you and I thought about it and when we reconvened I... Um, tried to work with everyone to solve the problem. I just thanked him. Have you ever been in a position where you had significant notes, but you knew the person that you needed to deliver them to 
was not the kind of note-taking kind of person. Oh, all the time. Every movie. <laughs> Every everything. Have you ever gone to the premiere of a movie and as the movie ends, in your mind you start thinking to yourself, man, there were 17 moments in that movie that my note affected. Well, in most of the movies I've done, the you can see things that you affected and you can see things that were your idea but it's not about that if you're watching the movie and that's what you're thinking about that's like watching the movie but looking in a mirror like that it in the end of the day the movie's the movie and it doesn't matter whose idea was whose idea and the best ideas were the ones where you can't even figure out whose idea it was because this one said this and this one said that and that one said this and who started it or who ended it or who did what in the middle, it doesn't really matter. It's that this is the movie. And you do, there are movies that you've done where you feel a great pride of, of ownership's the wrong word because that sounds a little uh, bravura, but you feel that you've contributed greatly to what the movie is by who was cast or what was written or where it was shot or how that was shot or how that was executed or how it was cut or because that thing was cut out that you always you know that you've made a contribution to the movie and some your contributions are more creative and some they're less creative so like the hateful eight you really don't have a lot of room for giving you don't see your creative work on the movie because it's all Quentin. So your role in making a movie like that is, is more to support his way of working and making sure that he can do his work. Whereas other movies, when the director is less experienced, you have a much more significant role in terms of what ends up on screen. With Quentin, you have, like whether I produce the movie or you produce the movie, the movie would be 99.9% .9 the same. In fact, it might even be 100% the same if you produced it or I produced it. Has that been a transition like when you did your first movie with Quentin, Reservoir Dogs, to The Hateful Eight, was it 99.9% .9 on Reservoir Dogs or was it 70% on Reservoir Dogs and 999 .9 on Hateful Eight? It's always um, overwhelmingly, significantly Quentin, even from the first movie. Also, the first movie, I was as inexperienced as him. So it wasn't like I had some grand, uh, uh, overarching kind of uh, experience that he didn't have. But you know I had like a hair more experience than he did. But you know how sometimes artists, no matter how extraordinary they are, they're not sitting down doing research on how much experience the executives have on the film. Did he know that you didn't have a lot of experience? Oh, probably. Yeah. I mean, he kind of knows everything. So, like, I think the, an almost, the answer to almost any question of did Quentin realize is probably yes, he did. Because he does. Because he just knows everything. He, he's a very strange man in that you work with him and, you know, you hang out with other people and you meet other people all the time and you have friendships and uh, work relationships. With him, you know like you have a brain and you have two legs and 
you operate in a similar way to him, but like you're like a bicycle and he's like a Ferrari. So his brain works at a significantly higher level. And like, I think I'm pretty smart. He's a Ferrari and I'm like, I'm a moped. Hey everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. I remember when I interviewed Reggie Hudlin. Amazing. He said that Quentin called him and asked him if he could come over his house and and meet with him. He came over and he took out of his valise or briefcase Django Unchained. It was like 160 pages or something like that. And he said, I was wondering if you could read this and let me know what you think. And I found that odd when I heard it because I had been told that a lot of times he's his own man and he doesn't really... Oh, he does that all the time. But the the interesting thing is also when he did that and Reggie said, sure, I'll read it. And Quentin said, okay, great. Can I get you a water or anything? Like he expects him to go sit down in the other room (laughs) right now. It's not like you're going to go home and let him know in a week. He's like, great. So I'm going to step out and I'll be back, you know, in an hour or two. And then we can chat. That's the way it works. And it, you're sort of like you come over and that is why you're coming over is to read the script and then talk about it. And it's very uncomfortable because you're reading it and he's sitting in the other room. And so it's not the most natural environment to like it, actually read something and comprehend it because you know you have to talk about it in two minutes. Plus the guy's in the other room and he's waiting to hear, are you laughing? Or are you not laughing? Oh, he went to the bathroom three times. In your position, when you work with somebody who's a Ferrari, let's face it, you haven't worked with all Ferraris, and even the people who you work with would say they weren't a Ferrari. How do you handle things when you're working with people who aren't as advanced like that? But that's the role that you have when you are with someone who's not the Ferrari. Um, enables you to have more room and help drive the car a little bit. So the role of a producer varies from movie to movie depending upon the strength of the director, the strength of uh, the screenplay when you first read it, whether or not that director is also the writer, and I've worked with a lot of writer-directors. Um, so it, like making, working on a Quentin movie is profoundly wonderful experience. It's not the most creative experience as a producer. So working with directors who have less experience and perhaps 
look for more or more receptive and look for more guidance is in some ways more fun. I look at the list of people you've worked with and I can't help but seeing some people on there who, like David Schwimmer, who are more staid. Then you got Betty Thomas, who's like a sailor. She's on the set. Every other word is fuck this, fuck that, that motherfucker, this, that. And then you have, like you said, Quinton. He knows exactly what he's doing. Not that the other people don't know what they're doing, but he's got it covered. I go back to it. It's just amazing that you have a job where you have to navigate with all these different people. And you're like a chameleon. You have to adjust to everybody and make it work and that's what you do and that's what you've done you do have to adjust and serve different roles for different people but at the same time i think that what most directors want and what most studios want from the producer and what the actors want from the producer is that they have a point of view and they're not wishy-washy and they're solid. And so while you have to adapt to many different circumstances and environments and tones and personalities, the degree to which you can have your own authenticity and point of view and be able to articulate that point of view for other people enables you to have a certain position with them. So while, yes, you have to adapt you also have to very much say, this is who I am and this is what I believe and this is what I uh, would like us to do or this is, um, I think this would be beneficial for the movie. And by presenting things in a clear and clean way, which I feel I, I, I really try to do um, and be authentic and don't bullshit people um, I had this one director say to me, we were meeting with this actor and trying to get him in our movie. And when the director left, he goes, I just can't believe how honest you are. And I was like, how nice should I? And he goes, you don't really bullshit people. He's like, is that like your thing? And I go, it's kind of my thing. I don't bullshit people ever. And I never like, if I say I'm going to do something, I do it. And if I say I don't know, I don't know. And I'm happy to say I don't know. But I'm not going to bullshit you. And especially actors have a bullshit meter that is so finely tuned that they know when someone's bullshitting them in one second. And they're sussing you out all the time, just like the same way that a director is seeing if the director is going to be helpful to them or not. And they... And they know and they figure it out. Like, is this director going to be my ally? Can I expose myself completely and he or she's got, my, got me? Or is it all about the directors, this and that? And actors figure that out really quickly. And you watch them do that on the set with the director. And then they let go or they tighten up. One or the other or somewhere in between. On Quentin movies, they let so far go that they'll do whatever he sort of suggests and do what they just feel so protected and they feel that, that he will, he's such their fan that they can do no wrong. So they beg to be in his movies. That's why. 
Yes, it's the script, but why do actors come back and do like really tiny roles in his movies? Because they just have a great day for a couple days. And they always want a bigger part, but they're like, all right, it's only a couple days, fuck it. You take somebody like Michael Madsen, who was also in The Hateful Eight and has done a number of his movies. I think if Michael were here, because I've interviewed him, he would say, look, bring me a movie, I'll take the movie. I'll make it work, I'll do a great job as best as I can. He's probably done 160 movies. But it's those relationships like you. You've done four of his movies, Michael Madsen, God knows how many movies he's done with him. And like you said, they just want to work. And also, like there was, it, you see situations like, for example, in The Hateful Eight, um, uh, spoiler alert, uh, Kurt Russell dies during the movie. Okay, sorry, spoiler alert. And he's, for, you know, 20 pages after that, he's dead on the floor and the scene still goes on for a while. And he's wearing this big uh, fur uh, animal coat and uh, he's on the floor. And you're shooting an order. And I remember I was sort of like, you know, Kurt, you, you like, we could probably figure something out here where you don't have to be here. You're dead. Like, you're this furry animal lying on the floor. And, and he goes, oh, no, 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 I'll be here every day. And he's dead, in, covered in an animal thing. I'm like, so a couple days goes by, a couple more days. And I figure any minute he's coming and going, you know, can I not come in tomorrow? You know, you're shooting from the back. I'm not even, every day he's there. And I go, Kurt, and I'm waiting for it. And I go, Kurt, you know, you know, he goes, dude, he goes, I have the best seat in the house. I'm lying on the, and the whole scene, he goes, I'm just lying there. He goes, he goes, I can't tell you how much fun this is. I'm just watching. He goes, I don't have to do anything. I'm dead. He goes, so I just get to sit there and watch these guys act, watch Quentin direct, watch the DP light. He goes, I just lying on the floor for 12 hours a day. He goes, this is the greatest gig I've ever fucking had. <laughs> he goes, I am learning so much. And this is so, I'm, I have the best seat in the house. Because you think I'm leaving and letting some stunt guy lie down on the floor? No way, that's my seat. And meanwhile, plenty of actors who would say, get me out of here. Get me out of here. Like, I don't want to lie here. Uh, you can't even see my face. I don't have to be here. He's like, there first thing in the morning. Morning. <laughs> he didn't even need makeup. He, you can't see his face. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today.
I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Hey, everybody, and I wanted to thank some of the sponsors on the podcast, starting with AquaTrue. If you haven't bought this countertop water purification system, you have to do so. It's incredible. It turns tap water into your favorite bottled water instantly. It saves you thousands and thousands of dollars. It gets rid of all those plastic bottles that you have in your trash. Thousands and thousands of listeners have bought these. Everybody loves it. Not one complaint. It's incredible. I haven't bought a bottle of water in years since I got this, and you won't either. And if you go right now to industrystandardwater.com and type in the promo code Barry, you'll immediately get a $100 discount, a $100 discount, and start enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever had. I guarantee it. Lastly, the Air Doctor. I don't know what the air inside your house is like, but the air inside my house, it feels heavy at times before I got this product. And now it got rid of all the bad air in my house, the dust, the pet hair, the pollen. It just gets rid of all the contaminants circulating through your home. And for me, when I got this product, it was amazing the difference that I found in the air in my house. And it's normally $600 and you can check Amazon right now and you'll see. But for all of you listening today, I can offer you $300 off. $300. Just go to airdoctorpro.com and type in the promo code Barry. That's airdoctorpro.com, promo code Barry, and save $300 and get rid of all the bad toxins in your house and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. For the audience, I want to talk about something that I've always been fascinated about when I've produced films, and I haven't obviously produced anywhere near as many as you, but I have been there on sets with many actors who are huge stars, and I see how they react to different things, and I see how somebody stays in their trailer, and they're not getting out until they get their way, and then I see the person who's not getting their way and just gutting it out and trying to engage and, and everything in between. But rather than talk about that, every film that I've ever worked on never shot in order, in sequence. And I always wondered to myself how difficult it would be if I was an actor and I have to recreate a certain thing and pick up where I left off and try to figure out how the continuity is going to be with my tone and my attitude and how I am, how I'm feeling that day. I might feel depressed that day. And then I didn't feel depressed the other day and how I do it. But forgetting that, is Quentin the only person you've ever worked with that shoots in order? Well, you also, you don't shoot completely in order, but you, on every movie you try to shoot as much in order as you can. But I've heard that he really goes as close to an order as he can. Is that wrong? He goes in it, but he's realistic. You can't keep jumping into a location, leaving a location, go back to location. You can, that he 
realizes you have to shoot out a location. So that requires you to jump in time. And so you try to shoot in order. On a movie like Hateful Eight, it's a little bit easier because it all takes place in one place. Reservoir Dogs pretty much all takes place in one place. So it, it's, it's really important to try to schedule the movie for the actor's benefit that you go in, in order as much as you can. However, there's always exigencies that force you out of that. An actor's availability, a location that just force you to make, have to make compromises in that area. And I think that's why the very best directors have the sort of whole view of the movie in a way that they're very helpful to the actor in navigating that this is, you know, in our story, this is two months later. And we're going to have to go back to that thing in the beginning. But this is, remember, when we're doing this, you've gone through X, Y, and Z that we haven't shot yet. And there's a way to help the actors through that. And, and I think that's where the very best directors are able to help to modulate that actor's performance in the, that follows that character journey. And it's... Uh, one of the most difficult things. It's why so many movies aren't good. I think it's one of the reasons why many movies suck is because you're watching it and all of a sudden from this scene to this scene, something doesn't make sense. Something in that character doesn't make sense. Something in that performance doesn't make sense. Why is that actor doing that? Well, it's because you're watching it and you're following you know, D to E. But in reality, D to E was shot three months apart. And when you're watching it at home, you have no clue about that. But he walks in the door there, and he walks in the door there. That was three months apart, two months apart. And those little inconsistencies in character um, pop through, and they take you out of the movie, even if you don't know that's what took you out of the movie. Because it's impossible to make a movie. It's, imp it's literally impossible to create 100 minutes of good movie over 35 days of shooting in all these disparate places with all these people around and all this chaos. It's impossible. So like once in a while, you kind of get it right. And most of the time, you kind of got through it. Out of all the movies that you've been involved with, when you sit back in the privacy of your own home and you think to yourself these got it a hundred percent right how many are them got it oh, none none no of course not none a hundred percent nothing's a hundred percent have you ever seen a perfect movie no is there a movie that you've seen that's the closest to perfect it might not even be one of your own what is it i think bridge on the river Kwai is almost a perfect movie i think that that's like i could say it's 100 percent but it's probably, it, it probably is. It, and To Kill a Mockingbird is 100%. You know, Lawrence of Arabia is 99.9%. Bridge on the River Kwai is probably 100% <laughs> for me. Like, The Great Escape is right up there. Broadcast News, right up there. Is there a comedy that came close. I think Working Girl is almost the perfect movie. 
Um, I think Jerry Maguire is a pretty great movie. That was one of the first movies I ever had an actor in, Jay Moore. Uh-huh. It was incredible. He auditioned so many times. He auditioned for the quarterback. He auditioned for the jazz singer. He auditioned for... And then they just brought him back in for the Bob Sugar. Bob Sugar. Yeah. Excellent. James L. Brooks is genre-defying, as far as I'm concerned. So uh, no one creates... Um, the most tender, emotional, um, real, heartfelt drama and comedy in the same movie as James L. Brooks. He is, as far as I'm concerned, he is living in another planet of skill. I was with him and I said to him, um, after I spent a couple hours with him once, and I... Then I said to him, I said, you know, and I quoted his own movie back to him. And I said, you know, there's a scene in um, Broadcast News where um, William Hurt says to Albert Brooks, something along the lines, I'm going to, this isn't verbatim, but it's close. Um, What do you do when your life exceeds your wildest fantasies? And he said, and Albert Brooks says, you keep it to yourself. And so I said to him, well, I just spent two hours with James L. Brooks and I'm not going to keep it to myself because <laughs> I'll tell anyone this was brilliant. So it exceeded my wildest expectations and I'm going to tell anyone who listen. <laughs> What's interesting what you said earlier, which is great, is you said, though, sometimes you have the most fun and the most creative times working with people who aren't those types of people, people who are just like a regular person who isn't the Ferrari. And there's this collaboration that you feel that is really special. So I think it's really fascinating that there's the best of both worlds for you. I think the biggest thing I want to ask before I get into where you grew up and stuff and how you came about was you're moving up the ladder. You start, you move up the ladder and you go and did you have a plan to have your own film company out of college or was it something that as you went through and you saw how different places ran, you thought to yourself, I think I can do this differently and be very successful or was it something that you just thought when you were a kid I want to run my own when I started out I was like a production assistant for a long time and um, worked in mail rooms and stuff like that and I eventually found my way into being an executive and I was an executive at different film companies at live entertainment and then at Miramax and when I ended up being head of production at Miramax and I was overseeing movies and we were making a lot of movies Um, And it was sort of the heyday of Merrimax in the early 90s, mid-90s. And uh, it was great. It was fun. We were making all these movies. It was very difficult. It was very challenging. But as an executive, I felt slightly removed from the movies. We were making 10, 12 movies a year that I had to oversee with a group of other people. And uh, after about a year and a half of doing that, I um, went to the Weinsteins and I said, I, I would like to leave to start my own company because I would like to, instead of overseeing these movies, I would like to go produce my own movies. And instead of you know, overseeing 
them and being slightly removed, I want to go create, be a little bit closer to the filmmaking. And that led me to start my own company, which is called Film Colony, which started in like 1995 and I've had since then and made, you know, movies through my quote unquote production company called Film Colony. Uh, and uh, at times I've flirted with sort of going back and being an executive again um, and went back and I was recently dean of the American Film Institute. So that was more of an executive job, obviously. Um, but I wanted to, um, in those mid 90s, I wanted to go be more intimately involved with the creation of a movie as opposed to a slate of movies. And that's what I did. And they were very supportive and gave me a producer deal and gave me overhead and uh, liked movies that I brought to them. And um, so I ended up making a lot of movies for them that they financed when I had a producing deal there. And that was um, a really satisfying time. So it made like Neverland and The Cider House Rules and got nominated for Academy Awards and the movies worked out well. And those were movies that I nurtured from their inception to their completion. All right, I want to go way, way back. I want you to take me back to where you grew up. Really? Your family, what the socioeconomic dynamic was there, and what was your first inspiration to getting into this crazy business? So I grew up in the Bronx and then in Westchester County, um, outside of New York City. And so my parents, um, my mom's a public school teacher, and my dad was a sort of insurance salesman. Um, didn't go to college. Um, so we grew up in um, kind of lower middle class kind of um, Bronx apartment building. Um, and then my father uh, uh, started a company with some other guys that was sort of real estate tax shelter business, and, which took off and he started to make some money and we sort of became very middle class, if you will, and moved to Westchester County. And so I went to public school and very kind of middle class, normal um, upbringing. And that wraps up part one of our podcast. I just wanted to thank my incredible partners, starting with Aquatrue, the revolutionary miniature countertop water purification system that works straight out of the box. Plug it in, fill it with tap water, and immediately turn your faucet into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You can get $100 off when you go to industrystandardwater.com and just type in the promo code BEAR and start enjoying the best water you've ever had and never buy another bottle of water again. And I Killed JFK, the groundbreaking film about the only living person who admitted to killing Kennedy. Go to IKillJFK.com, buy the film and the rare interviews with five of the last living experts, and I guarantee it'll change your mind about what happened that day. And the Air Doctor, the innovative portable air purification system which will change your overall quality of life. It instantly removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and other contaminants circulating in your home. Normally $600, and if you don't believe me, check Amazon right now. But for a limited time, I can offer you 50% off. That's a $300 savings. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. And that wraps up part one of two episodes. You can check out the next episode this coming Thursday. And here's a preview. 
of the next episode. Filmmaking is an art and a craft that you learn by reading a lot of stories, by developing your own taste, by um, creating your own stories, by having confidence in your own point of view, is I think what people need to have. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave... Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.